Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. The last time we were in Acts together, um, Paul had been rescued by these Roman soldiers uh, from a violent Jewish mob who was trying to kill him. Uh, the captain of the Roman soldiers, he wanted to get to the bottom of uh, what had caused this whole riot. His main job was keeping peace in the, the province, the area where he was assigned. Uh, and so he called the Jewish Sanhedrin council together, and uh, along with the Apostle Paul here, to come and testify before him. And how this went and what happened is the subject of our study in Acts 23 this morning. I don't know if you like courtroom dramas. Uh, I'm not talking about Judge Judy or the People's Court or stuff like that. Well, there's a lot of drama in those things. But, right, like the, uh, probably dating myself here, but like Perry Mason or Law and Order or any of those John Grisham uh, novels that have been made into movies. I'm not a fan. I find them boring because they're often all in the same place. It's in that courtroom. Now, you might be, and you're like, no, it's exciting. There's all this strategy uh, and stuff. I find them stressful, too. Maybe that's why I don't uh, like them. But it's clear some people do. That's kind of what the book of Acts is like from this point on. I mean, over and over again for the next four to five years of Paul's life and these remaining chapters uh, of the book of Acts, he's going to be in different courtrooms and he's going to be doing what God said he was going to do way back when Paul first trusted Christ as Savior. Uh, that happened back in Acts chapter 8. And God told, uh, or God said this about Paul in Acts 8, 15. He said, for Paul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It's over 20 years now, all these different mission trips that Paul has been on, and he's proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles, that's for sure. He's also proclaimed the gospel to the children of Israel. Now he's going to have multiple opportunities to share the gospel before kings, before government leaders. And we read chapter 23 together earlier, but let's go to the Lord in prayer once more, asking his blessing on our time and his word together this morning. Father, we come to you right now and ask your Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of your word to us. Um, here in this chapter, uh, it does read a lot like a historical account, um, but there's much for us to learn in these words that our eyes are going to uh, come across here. So I pray our hearts would be open uh, to your living and powerful word. Uh, you have designed it to be used by the Holy Spirit uh, to quicken us into uh, obedience to you, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior, that, that would be, of course, the first step of obedience. For us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and we've been born again, uh, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit who indwells us uh, would use your word to sanctify us this morning, to bring us closer to Jesus, to conform us into the image of Christ, uh, to bring our lives into alignment with your word and what you've left us here to do until you return, until you call us home. We're here to make disciples. Help us to understand how we can apply the truths in chapter 23 to our lives this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
So uh, verse 1 here, it opens up with Paul's defense before uh, this council in this courtroom, before the captain of the Roman soldiers and before the Sanhedrin uh, that Paul was once a part of. Don't forget that. Uh, Paul says this, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul's declaring a few things there right in that opening statement. Uh, by addressing them as men and brethren, Paul is boldly uh, implying equality with them. I mean, he's not some criminal and, and there's some high and mighty, perfectly righteous people. Paul knows what they know. He used to sit right where they sat. He used to think like they think, believe what they believe. And then Paul concisely declares his innocence on the false charges that are being made against him. He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, meaning up to this point. Now, Paul's in no way proclaiming that he's perfect. He's a human being. He's a sinner just like you and I. He puts his pants on the same way we do in the morning. Uh, but he's saying, before God, I'm innocent of what I'm being accused of here. And then verse 2 records for us the immediate response of the Sanhedrin to Paul's opening statement. The high priest Ananias orders those Sanhedrin members who are standing closest to Paul to smite him on the mouth, to strike him in the head for what he has just said. And they do. In verse 3, we see Paul's response to that. He says, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for thou sittest to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. You see, when Paul calls Ananias a white wall here, Paul is saying that this high priest is like a decomposing wall. Uh, he's crumbling. He's rotten. He's about ready to fall over, but somebody has painted that thing white to give it the appearance that there's no problem there in an attempt to conceal its actual decrepit condition. Does that sound familiar? Because Jesus said something like that in Matthew 23, 37 38, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees of his day, Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of dead men and everything unclean. You understand what's being said here? And these are people who are just playing with religion. They're putting on airs of being holy and righteous and right with God, but they're not. And their corrupt heart is eventually evidenced by what they do here by Ananias telling uh, these other Sanhedrin members to strike Paul. The rest of the Sanhedrin, they're shocked at Paul's response to Ananias, the high priest there in verse 3. And so in verse 4, they say, revilest thou God's high priest? I mean, that's a, that's a how dare do you talk to this man of God that way? And this dialogue continues in verse 5. Paul maybe responds with humility, or maybe with some pointed sarcasm, translating it from Greek to English is a little tough here to know exactly which one. If in humility, Paul is saying, I wish not, that's King James for I don't know. I didn't know, uh, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it's written that you should not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. It's entirely possible Paul didn't know Ananias was a high priest. I mean, it's been 20 years since Paul was on the Sanhedrin council. That role would have changed in that time. Now, it's also probable, though, that the high priest had special garments that were identifiable, but we also know that Paul had chronic vision problems. So, I mean, it might be Paul uh, responding in, in humility because he didn't know who he was talking to or who ordered him to uh, be struck. But it also may have been Paul's intention here in verse 5 to be using sarcasm to infer that he didn't think Ananias ought to be the high priest. 
because of how he was acting. That he shouldn't be the high priest because by ordering Paul to be struck, who at this point was innocent, he's not condemned of anything, Ananias was actually violating the very law he was sitting there um, assigned to preside over in this court. See, at this time, Jewish law said this, he who strikes the cheek of one Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. He that strikes a man strikes the Holy One himself. Now, that's not in the Bible. That's just Jewish law at this time. Uh, But it was part of the Jewish law that Ananias and the rest of these Sanhedrin council members had sworn themselves and had the responsibility to uphold. Uh, But biblically, it was a violation as well. God's word says in Deuteronomy 25, 1 and 2, that only a guilty man can be beaten. And Paul had not yet been found guilty of anything. And so what happens here in these verses, in verses 2 through 5, it's, it's a turning point in Paul's defense. I believe wholeheartedly that Paul saw this uh, as, as a golden opportunity to share the gospel with this council. I mean, that was his intent with these Jewish religious leaders. Uh, we know from Paul's own testimony in the book of Romans how he has this deep, passionate burden that the gospel would get to and transform the lives of his own people, uh, of the Jewish people. That God would open their eyes to their lost condition through the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it becomes very clear to Paul here and everything that just went on in these first five verses. His audience isn't ready for that. Um, There's not going to be any listening to the gospel here. And no reception of it. Their hearts are are still too hard. And beginning in verse 6, we see a definite change in tactics here by Paul and what he says to this council. In verses 6 through 15, we see Paul's distraction. He knows his audience. He knows his accusers here. The Sanhedrin council, uh, by design, it's made up of two competing schools of thought theologically. You've got Sadducees, just like it talks about here, and you've got Pharisees. You got Pharisees who, who believe in the resurrection. They believe in life after death. They believe in angels. They believe in, in the supernatural. And then you have the Sadducees, who honestly really don't believe in a whole lot of anything. Um, they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe um, in the supernatural. Almost like practical atheists. And this council is split about 50-50. And says Paul perceived that. And he uses uh, this to his advantage in getting out of this situation. Would you look at verse 6? But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. And it's of the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm called into question here. Do you see what Paul's doing in this situation? He's trying to split the council. He's going to get at least one half of them on his side in this issue. Uh, at what at first glance is a non-relevant issue. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. I mean, I was trained as a Pharisee. We know from earlier in the book of Acts that Paul sat under one of the most well-respected ones at that time, Gamaliel. And then Paul says, I believe in the resurrection. I'm 100% Pharisee when it comes to that. Now, Paul's not a Pharisee like these guys are, right? Not right now. Um, They had not recognized Jesus as God's promised Messiah while Paul had. Paul was once a Pharisee just like them, and Paul had this in common with them even right now. He definitely believed in the resurrection. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 6. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, that's what I'm being called into question for here, and that's true. Uh, Paul was brought before this council because he had been preaching 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the resurrection a primary component of our gospel? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's really, it's the main thing. We could go to that verse that, that describes it, and you all know it by heart, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have what? Have everlasting life. Uh, Paul describes the gospel in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, but he rose again the third day uh, according to the scriptures. So yes, Paul is being called into question here for his proclamation of the gospel and its preaching of new life in Christ and eternal life in Jesus Christ by God's grace through faith. I don't think you can deny, uh, though, that Paul has as his main motive here uh, in this distraction that he causes getting out of this situation by starting an argument between these two competing parties. But, but Paul is also planting gospel seeds in the ears and in the minds and in the hearts of everybody who's hearing what he has just said. In verses 7 to 10, record the reaction of the council to Paul's distraction. They take their mind off Paul and what they're there for right now, all the false charges against him, and they begin arguing about theological issues, specifically the resurrection. It gets so heated, it tells us here, that the captain of the Roman soldiers, he once again fears Paul's about ready to be injured or to be killed, and he orders him to be whisked away back into the castle, into the safety of the army barracks there. Let's go to verse 11, because something amazing happens there uh, to Paul that night. It says, Jesus comes to him with a message. He hasn't seen him in a while. We only saw him on that road to Damascus. Last week, we learned that at some point, he saw a vision of Christ while Paul was praying in the temple at Jerusalem after Paul had been saved. And here, he, he meets Jesus. And it's a message from Christ of comfort and encouragement for sure. We don't know what Paul's... Uh, spiritual or emotional state is here. It's not listed. I think we can all probably understand what it normally would be. And uh, I think it'd be normal for any Christian to experience fear after everything that's went on. It's really all we've been. We've been here a couple of weeks, almost a month in this, uh, in this whole account. But for Paul, it's just been hours. It's a couple days. You know, fear and despair would be a normal Christian response in this situation. I want you to try to put yourself in Paul's shoes here. I mean, over the past few days, you've almost been killed a few times. <laughs> and uh, you felt that God clearly, you have no doubt, God had led me to Jerusalem with the purpose of sharing the gospel. But I've only met obstacle after obstacle. Now listen to what happens here in verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him. And he said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. That's my favorite verse in this whole chapter. Who's there with Paul in this prison cell? Yeah, Jesus. That night, Jesus comes to him. Uh, isn't the presence of the Lord comforting? And uh, what does Jesus say to Paul? Be of good cheer. <laughs> Not something. In the situation. He says, be of good cheer. Just four words. Now, you might have a newer English translation. Probably says, take courage. That's just two words. Do you know what Jesus says in the Greek? Just one word. It says, tarsi. It says, tarsi. Did you know that all in the Bible, Jesus is the only one who ever spoke that word or what in English for his four words for us? Uh, be of good cheer. Take courage. He first said it. Jesus first said it in Matthew 9, 2. And he came 
to heal a paralyzed man that lame his whole life. And Jesus says, Tarsai, be of good cheer. Your sins have been forgiven. And that man was healed. His life was transformed. Later in that chapter in Matthew 9, 22, Jesus again said it to a woman who had a lifelong blood disease. She had spent every dime she had trying to get rid of it. No, no avail. And she reaches out to Jesus and grabs the hem of his, his garment. And he turns around. He says, daughter, Tarsai, be of good cheer. Take courage. Your faith has saved you. Next time Jesus utters that word is in Matthew 14, 27. The disciples are caught in one of those Sea of Galilee storms. I and mean, when winds are howling, waves are crashing over the deck. And if things couldn't get any scarier for them at the moment, all of a sudden they look out and they see some dude walking across the top of the waves. But it's Jesus. And he says, Tarsai, be of good cheer. Take care. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And Christ's disciples hear Jesus say this to them again in John 16, 33. Right before, hours before Jesus would go to the cross, he tells them, I'm telling you all these things. Because in this world, you're going to have much uh, tribulation. But Tarsai, be of good cheer. Take courage, because I've overcome the world. And then here in verse 11, these words flow from Christ's mouth to this disciple, Paul. And he says, Tarsai, be of good cheer, Paul. Take courage. You understand that he speaks that same message to you? Christian, that's the message of Christ to you. I don't know what obstacles are in your way. I might not know what prison you're in right now, um, but I know what Jesus wants you to know. This is his message to you as well. Tarsai, be of good cheer. Take, take courage. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. Take courage. The presence of Christ is definitely a source of great comfort, but Jesus doesn't just say Tarsai, like, Take courage, be a good cheer, and that's it. The message of Jesus continues there in verse 11, right? Have you ever had somebody say something like that to you? You're going through a rough spot, and they're just trying to help, you know. Their heart's right, and they're like, hey, take courage, be a good cheer. The Lord's got it all under control. You're like, well, thank you. Why didn't I think of that? Jesus doesn't do that here. He reminds Paul of why he should, Tarsai, and why he can be of good cheer and take courage. It says in verse 11, For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also of me in Rome. Are you getting this? There's actually a lot here in verse 11. Because I wonder if Paul sat that night in that Roman prison cell and he felt like a pretty big failure. <laughs> I mean, he had this clear leading from God. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. God was very straight with Paul. Paul knew what God had told him through multiple people. Persecution would occur when you, when you get there, Paul. But I wonder if Paul sat there this night thinking, well, this hasn't went real well. <laughs> I mean, from the moment I got here, first I had to deal with a bunch of division in the church at Jerusalem, and then I get this opportunity to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus as Savior, and I can't wait for it, and I'm hoping for a big day of Pentecost type of response, and instead people are trying to kill him. And then he gets rescued, if you want to call it that rescued to a Roman prison cell. I wonder what Paul's thinking. Ain't nobody got saved. And what does Jesus tell Paul here regarding why he should be of good cheer in verse 11? As thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem. You see what Jesus is telling Paul there? You did what I asked you to do, Paul. <laughs> I mean, you shared the gospel. You were obedient. It's not your job to save anybody. It's your job to do what I ask you to do. It's your job to be obedient. You did that. 
And then Jesus says, and you're not done. (laughs) That's got to be the most hopeful part for Paul. Just as you have testified of me here, you must also testify of me in Rome. Jesus is saying there's more work for you to do, Paul. I'm not done with you yet. I still have a mission for you. And listen, Christian, if you're alive this morning, and I think everybody is that I can see here, if you're alive, if God woke you up this morning, he's not done with you yet. He's got a mission for you. He has a plan and purpose for your life. So don't let whatever prison cell you might find yourself in this morning, don't let it depress you. Don't let it distract you from that mission God has for you. What Jesus tells Paul here isn't just about what had happened and what what was going on right now. See, Paul's going to need this message. He's going to need to grab on to what Jesus told him here that night because there's a storm coming that Paul doesn't even know about right now. For the sake of time, let me just summarize that storm that's brewing that Paul's unaware of. It's found in verses 12 through 15. You know, I believe the Sanhedrin council, pretty soon after Paul was whisked away back into the Roman army barracks, I believe that they were like, yeah, guy pulled one over on us. You know, and, and we see the result here. A 40-person group of Jews, they take a vow. And they're not going to eat anything. They're not going to drink anything until they had killed Paul. And they go to the top leaders of the Sanhedrin and they say, hey, why don't you send to the Roman captain and have him bring down Paul again tomorrow. Act like you got more questions to ask him and we're going to assassinate Paul. We're serious about it. We've taken a vow before God. We're not going to eat a thing. We're not going to drink a thing until Paul is dead. These guys are committed. I mean, what they're vowing here, they're putting their lives on the line. Even more so, they know that Paul is guarded by Roman soldiers. In order to do what they're planning to do, a few of them are, are going to go out as well. But do you want evidence of God's sovereignty over every situation? We find it here in verses 16 to 35 because we read about Paul's uh, deliverance. Somehow, Paul has this nephew, <laughs> and God makes sure that Paul's nephew hears about this plan. He tells Paul, who then calls a centurion who's guarding Paul, he says, hey, take this young man uh, to the Roman captain so he can inform him of, of this plot. Is God in control? You have everything. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have anything about Paul's family. Like, does he have sister? Apparently, he's got a sister. A brother says sister, right? So we know he's got a sister. This is his sister's son. This is the only, only reference at all in Scripture about Paul's family. And somehow, God in his sovereignty makes sure that this guy is in the right place at the right time to hear about this so that Paul will be delivered from danger, delivered from death. The Roman captain, he believes this young man's report. And it says that he immediately arranges for Paul to be transferred uh, to a different city where it'd be safer. He's going up the chain of command to the Roman governor Felix. I mean, this is the Pontius Pilate of this time. And the plan to avert the assassination of, of Paul through this transfer is recorded in verses 23 and 24. Would you look at that? The Roman captain, he calls unto himself two centurions. How many soldiers are they over? A hundred apiece, right? So you got them, and then you got 200 infantry soldiers. And then it says you got 70 cavalry, and you got 200 spearmen. I'll do the math for you. That's 470 bodyguards that God has arranged to make sure that Paul gets out of this situation, that Paul's delivered. This isn't the first time that Paul's had a nighttime escape. Way back at his beginning, his first mission trip, you remember he was let down the city wall of Damascus in a basket? And here God's delivering him through a whole battalion of Roman army soldiers. 
The Roman captain sends with this contingent a letter describing the situation, and Paul makes it safely to Caesarea. Once Paul's accusers will arrive there, he's going to have another opportunity to share the gospel, to testify of his faith before the governor Felix. That's in chapter 24. We'll look at that next. This is just the first of many government leaders that Paul will testify about Jesus in front of, just like God promised him way back when he was first saved in Acts chapter 8. He's a chosen vessel unto me, for he must bear witness of my name before Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel, just like Jesus told Paul the night before. Tarsai, Paul, be of good cheer. Take courage. Just as you have testified of me here in Jerusalem, so must thou also do in Rome. When Paul had trusted in Jesus as his Savior, and I mean, from that moment on, we've been studying this. His life was transformed, wasn't it? Have you done that? Have you done that? If not, don't delay any longer. Right now, confess your sins to God in prayer, even as I'm talking. Tell God that you're trusting Jesus and who he is and what he's done to save you from your sins, to give you new life in Christ now, to give you eternal life. Tell God you want to follow Jesus. You want to be born again. Do that even as I'm speaking. For you who have done that, praise the Lord. But Christian, I hope God's reminded you of a few things in his word this morning. I mean, you might feel like life is out of control, but he's in control of it. He's in control. In verses 6 through 10, it's so amazing here. I mean, Paul is actually freed by his foes. I mean, they're the ones that wanted to kill him. They're calling him before the Sanhedrin council, and he starts his argument, and he's freed by that. In verses 11 to 35, Paul's actually protected in his prison. He's protected by his prison and by those who imprisoned him. I want you to think about that for a second and how that might apply to your life. I mean, I doubt Paul thought, well, this is wonderful, this prison cell. This is a lot of fun. I doubt that Paul thought it was wonderful to be prevented from going on mission. I know he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Spain. Take the gospel to the farthest reaches. And it's kind of roadblock here, isn't it? But what we've learned is that eventually God used these things. He used these very things that seem like obstacles, that seem like terrible situations and circumstances. God used them to take Paul where he desired to go and to do what Paul desired to do for the Lord. Our sovereign Lord, who is in control of all things, he used these circumstances to help Paul on mission. Will you listen to Jesus' message to you this morning? He says, Tarsai, be of good cheer, take courage. I'm right here with you. I woke you up this morning. I'm the one who's keeping your heart beating. That next inhale, that next exhale, that's from me because I'm in control and I have plans and I have purposes for you. Be of good cheer. Jesus follower. Will you trust that sovereign Lord this morning? I mean, this is a viewpoint change for sure. I, I, I don't argue that. But will you tell him, Lord, no, I'm not altogether fond of what I'm going through right now. <laughs> I'm not altogether fond of this prison I'm in this morning, but I know that you are good. And I know that you know what's best for me. And I know that you want what's best for me. And I know you've got the power to bring that about. So I trust you. Will you tell God that? I'm going to take courage this morning. Do that now for God's glory, for your good. Tommy, would you come and lead us in a time to respond to God's word, respond to Jesus' message to us this morning?